This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Decode DC, Redacted Tonight with Lee Camp, Counterspin, La Show, Truth Dig Radio, Activism from Best of the Left, and The Rachel Maddow Show. So, new uh, report out from Reuters about uh, ISIS and the consequences of bombing them. Now, I love this article. The reason I, I, I love it is not because of the devastation you're about to find out, but because finally somebody's saying, hey, wait a minute now, maybe bombing them does have consequences. You know, we showed you over the last couple of days Republicans like McCain and Bill Kristol and Peggy Noonan coming out and saying, what, just bomb them, boom, 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 what difference does it make? We just kill them, <laughs> it's too easy. Well, Reuters investigated what difference it makes by going on the ground and talking to the local Shia, the local Kurds there. So let me start with a small piece of good news. First, they explained that the unlikely coalition of Kurdish Peshmerga fighters, Shiite militias, and the U.S. Air Force won a major victory when it broke a siege of the Shiite Turkmen town of Amarli last week and drove Islamic State from 25 nearby Sunni towns and villages. In fact, they go on to explain later in the report that uh, along with the Kurds, we've driven them uh, out of 127 villages overall, and Amarli is a very important town, so a big town and a bunch of uh, smaller villages. That's the good news. Okay, now the bad news. So what has happened uh, during the fighting and after the fighting? Okay, Reuters explains. But the aftermath is far from what the Americans envisioned. Smoke now rises from those Sunni villages where some houses have been torched by the Shiite militia. But wait, it gets worse. Guess what the Shiite militia learned from ISIS? Beheadings. So there's a report of a mom uh, saying that her young son uh, ran from the Islamic State, ran from ISIS, okay? And Shiites in that part of town, or in that next town that he was in, captured him and said he was ISIS, when he was in fact running from ISIS. And they cut his head off anyway. Now another video has emerged of Shiite militia cutting off more Sunni heads. Now everybody's cutting off heads. And then there's a third report about how uh, Shiite militia, and there's pictures standing next to houses that they burnt down. All right, now, when is this all going to end? I mean, if the Shiite and the Kurds win against the Sunnis, those are the three ethnic groups, basically, that we've got in Iraq, uh, well, then can we have peace at that point? Well, a Shiite volunteer explains, the Sunnis will come back to their villages, but not now, after a few months. Now, pause to think about that for a second. A giant chunk of Iraq is Sunni. That's the part that ISIS took over, right? With the help of a lot of the local populations, they were tired of getting run over by the Shiites who weren't running a real democracy in Iraq. So now the Shiites are saying, no, no, we're going to take all those towns back and we're going to kick all the Sunnis out. And maybe we let them back in a couple of months. So what, tens of millions of people, where are they going to go? And are you sure they're really going to be let back? It's the Shiite militias are already cutting heads off and burning down the houses. I don't think that they're much of a sense to let them back in a couple of months. Even if they did, that's still an unbelievable disaster. Okay, it gets worse. 
Uh, now we go to a member of the Kurdish security services, and he says, All my neighbors were Arabs. Now most of them are with the Islamic State. We cannot be mixed together. The only solution is for them to leave. So the Kurds and the Shiite that we are helping with our air force now are in agreement. Okay, We're going to stop ISIS and their reign of terror. And when we are done with that, we are going to impose our own reign of terror. And when we do, none of the Sunnis are welcome. We're going to kick them all out of Iraq. There are no good answers here. And the point I'm making is, you think just bombing them is the answer? You don't know the half of it, you don't know the third of it, you don't know any of it, okay? So these neocons who just say, oh, let's just blunder in there and fight, 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 and kill, kill, kill. They don't have a clue as to what's happening on the ground. All right, now more. But even during the operation, Reuters explains, there were cracks in the coalition. Shiite militia and Kurdish forces fought under their own banners, and the least visible flag was that of Iraq. So, as we've been telling you now for about 12 years, there is no such thing as Iraq. Uh, the Shia don't feel any kinship with the Sunni there. Those are the two major sects of Islam. The Kurds, who are Sunni but a different ethnicity, don't feel any kinship with the Arab Sunnis or with the Shiites. <laughs> the flag of Iraq is a invention of the British Empire. They don't give a damn about this thing you call Iraq. So the best idea was always to split them, and while we had a chance, we argued to split them amicably. Now they're being split not amicably, okay? Not only is it n not on good terms or decent terms, it is on barbaric terms. So now if ISIS splits them, well then they have this terror state right in the middle of the Middle East. If we drive ISIS out of there, then God knows what's going to happen to the innocent Sunnis of that area. Tens of millions of people. Then we're going to have to go in and rescue the Sunnis, and then fight the Shiites and the Kurds, who we are now aligned with. There is no end to this. <laughs> Reuters explains further, now that the common enemy has been pushed back, the alliance is unraveling. Kataib Hezbollah, which controls access to Amrli, is denying Kurds entry to the town, and one Peshmerga commander, and that's the Kurdish militia, described the militia as the Shiite Islamic State. Great! We beat the Sunni Islamic State, and in its place, we have the Shiite Islamic State. Remember, those are the guys we're currently helping. Alright, finally, uh, when you ask a Kurdish fighter about the Shia, here's what he says. This land is ours. They're an occupying force. There will be bigger problems in the Islamic State in this area. So the Kurds basically saying, once we're done being allies with the Shiites for this temporary problem of the Islamic State, then we go to real war. Remember, the Shia are the majority in so-called Iraq and run the government. Do the Kurds look like they want to be run by the Shia? The answer is not simple. It takes a lot of strategy, clear thinking, and hard work to come up with any kind of decent answer in this situation. But if you hear anyone on television, and almost everyone on television is saying this, saying, oh, it's okay, ISIS is evil, so we just bomb evil, we kill evil, and problem solved. 
Read the facts. Problem nowhere near solved. Problems, problems, problems all day long. Will my problems work out right or wrong? My baby don't like anything I do. My teacher seems to feel the same way. This is Decode DC. I'm Andrea Seabrook. This week, as the House of Representatives debated arming rebels against Islamic State terrorists, a different kind of event was going on across the street in the Library of Congress. It featured a man they call the Vicar of Baghdad. I have dedicated my life to working for tolerance, for religious tolerance, for breaking down division and evil. And then the evil still comes. This is the Reverend Canon Andrew White. He is an Anglican priest and the president of the Foundation for Relief and Reconciliation in the Middle East. White is called the Vicar of Baghdad because he leads the last Anglican church left in Iraq, St. George's Church in Baghdad. He runs a health clinic that sees thousands of patients a month and a food program that feeds hundreds of people every week. His flock is made up of Christians and Muslims, both Shia and Sunni. My people are being slaughtered, massacred, persecuted, and I have done everything to try and prevent it. And I think the message for all of us is that even when they get us, we mustn't stop. Even when they destroy us, we must not destroy them. Even there, when there is no love shown to us, we have still got show love. We must never stop. We must never give in. I will go back to my people and see so many of them who have been killed, destroyed. They are left there, laying on the street. If I just turned round in hostility against those who have showed us hostility, it would simply create war. But we have to work for peace, and it hurts. His relief efforts are incredible, but White is well known internationally for something else too. He is one of the only people in the world who has established communications and built relationships with the leaders of both Sunni and Shia groups. There are precious few people both groups trust, and the Vicar of Baghdad is one. The Reverend White was in Washington to accept the Anne Frank Special Recognition Award for Religious Tolerance and Reconciliation. He sat down with me after the ceremony. I asked him to give me a sense of what it's like to do this work in Baghdad today. Well, there's absolutely no freedom. You can't just walk down the street and go shopping and live a normal life. I have 35 soldiers all around our compound and 
When I go out, I have army in front and army behind. There's no freedom. We are living basically in a war zone. There are guns everywhere. And we've got people with these guns who can't really use them. White is a big man, a tall man, though he mostly travels by wheelchair. Just weeks after beginning his religious reconciliation work in the late 90s, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. His balance is poor, his physical strength wavers, but his spiritual strength does not. Give me a sense of what you do every day when you're not in Washington. Well, my work is very diverse. Uh, one hand, I'm running our church and clinic and school. So we have everything. So I run our network. We also do a lot of reconciliation work, not least between Sunni and Shia. And then I look after the U.S. Embassy, their chapel, so I engage there a lot. And I work with the various religious leaders. So we're doing a lot of humanitarian work. We're providing relief to people. And we give food to people. We give health care to people. And we preach at people. We are sitting here in the Library of Congress, across the street, the U.S. Capitol building. Members of Congress, the House and the Senate, are debating war. Where does your voice fit into the debate here? What would you wish they were hearing if there is something? Well, we have met with various members of Congress and Senate here. But what we want to say that is that more war is not the answer. What we need to do is have more peace, more reconciliation, more engagement with the other and providing for the urgent needs of those who have lost everything now. How do you do that, literally? How do you do that with ISIS operating in Iraq relatively close to you? They're 20 kilometers away from us now. We cannot engage with the Islamic State at all. They're not the kind of people we can relate to. We can deal with the Sunni leaders, the Shia leaders, the other religious leaders, but not these terrorists. It's not good to call them radical Muslims. They're not. They're terrorists. And we can't deal with such evil terrorists. We can engage with all of the other religious leaders and we can get them to influence their people so that they do not join these extremist groups. That's what we're doing. Can you help our listeners understand the distinction you made between this terrorist organization and radical Islam? How do people talk about that? Well, I'm not distinguishing it between radical Islam and terrorists. I'm distinguishing between terrorists and Muslims. 
And the Muslims that we work with are not enemies, they are friends. And the Muslims we work with, we are encouraged them to get the message to other Muslims not to be part of these extremist groups because they do not have the answer to our divisions and our problems. So going back to Congress and the U.S. political process, how do you tell Congress that more war is not the answer, but we also can't talk to the people of ISIS? How, how do you deal with ISIS if not through military force? You know, we're in a total mess, and we can't expect your nation to sort out the mess that we have caused. And part of our mess has been caused by the mess that you left us through war. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that allows you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Their aim is to help you make the best-looking website possible while keeping the process incredibly simple. You can start with an ever-growing collection of their great templates and then build your site with easy drag-and-drop tools, which means you can be up and running in no time. But don't think that just because Squarespace is easy to use that it can't do very much. Their list of features is a mile long, including everything you need for commerce, blogging, image gallery, audio collections, they even have a tool to design your own custom logo, and they've partnered with dozens of third parties to help make use of their services and data that you can access right from within your site. Basically, there's way too much to mention here, but the good news is you can try out everything they have to offer for free for 14 days, no credit card necessary. Then when you're ready to make the move permanent, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT at checkout. That's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. It's the all-in-one platform. Makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with 20 highly customizable templates to make your own professional website or online portfolio. Industry-leading support at just $8 a month. Wow. You know the drill, you know where to go. I get it. You see the reports of the beheadings and other horrible killings, and you get angry. You should be angry. But that's no reason to hurl your rational thought out with your peaceful composure. Doing so is a classic baby with the bathwater scenario, which, if you hate babies as much as I do, we can agree that's a horrible waste of bathwater. <laughs> so let's go through our new war with ISIS or ISIL in a calm and rational manner instead of a display of grunts and chest beating that would rival Rush Limbaugh being burped by Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> First, we're largely going to war with ISIS because of the horrible killings, right? But if we were to go to war with everybody who perpetuates and, and perpetrates gruesome killings, we'd have to bomb dozens of countries, including our own. Millions have died from our bombing over the past decade. Furthermore, James Foley, one of the journalists murdered by ISIS, would want nothing less than to be used as a reason for war, which he has been. He was against war and talked on video about the manipulation of the 
the public that allows for endless war. Using Foley to push for this war is like using Ted Cruz to sell tolerance, or Rupert Murdoch to sell anti-aging cream, or Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp to sell the virtues of acting without white makeup on. It's preposterous. Next, most people who die in war and bombings are innocent bystanders. Most people agree on that. In our war with ISIS, we will kill far more people than ISIS could ever hope to kill. We're basically saying to them, how dare you kill innocent people? Let us do that. <laughs> Since 9-11, the U.S. has conducted 94,000 airstrikes in the Middle East. 94,000. Hold on. ISIS is supposed to be like the most horrific, formidable group that has arisen in that area in years. And we've been bombing the shit out of that area for years. You don't think the two are connected, do you? Of course they are. Of course they're connected. And bombing more will create more of them. Look, you pour water on Gizmo, it makes gremlins, right? But then, once you accidentally do that once, and your whole apartment is lousy with gremlins, you don't keep pouring more water on the mother going, hey, maybe this will fix it. Maybe, clearly the first, second, and third bucket of water wasn't enough water. Let's try some more water. We're pouring water on gremlins. And believe it or not, there are options other than bombing evil or endorsing it. Things like humanitarian aid, diplomacy, UN police forces, and not publicizing every gruesome act ISIS does. Like it's a new Harry Potter book combined with Fifty Shades of Grey into Harry Shades of Grey. Right? <laughs> ISIS clearly wants lots of juicy media coverage. You know what tipped me off? The fact that they have a boom mic operator and, and we're willing to give them all the attention they love we won't let families of kidnapped victims pay ransom because it could encourage more kidnapping well isn't the same true for giving these militants the exact media coverage they're seeking between our media coverage our continuous bombing and our love of supplying weapons to people in other countries we are an ISIS generating machine we indirectly print new militants faster than we print dollars to fund the vicious cycle. <laughs> Lastly, this new war is not at all constitutional. Legally, Obama should get approval from Congress, and then he should also ask the United Nations. Instead, he's doing neither of those and just saying, my fellow Americans, put your hands over your eyes and hum quietly to yourselves. And no matter what you hear going on in the Middle East, do not open your eyes! As David Swanson says in one of his brilliant articles on this topic, when unilateral military action is taken, then every action taken in support of this illegal war is a war crime. And I agree. Well, not every action. I mean, some of the soldiers might choose to shave their downstairs region because the desert is hot and sticky over there. And while I imagine a Brazilian on certain men looks especially gnarly, I don't want to call it a war crime. I, it's, you know, it's an assault on the senses at worst. It, it probably shouldn't send a man to the Hague for going full chrome dome on his sack. And this... At the end of the day, you should ask yourself, am I only supporting the exact same belligerent, ignorant, neocon nonsense that I used to rage against because it's now being done by a Democrat who looks like he probably actually reads books that don't pop up? If you're, if you're angry about these beheadings, don't sign off on three more years of killing civilians and creating terrorists.
As the U.S. began conducting airstrikes on Islamic State strongholds in Syria, elite media were in clear agreement on one point. Barack Obama doesn't like war. They even seem to agree on the trope to describe that supposed fact. It was a remarkable moment for a reluctant warrior. The reluctant warrior must wage war, but not total war, tepid war. You're saying he's the reluctant warrior, so can the reluctant warrior lead uh, in a situation where we don't know what the end game is? He's gotten somehow turned tonight from being that reluctant warrior to being an actual warrior against ISIS. Gloria, is he going to become a warrior and not a reluctant warrior? As Syria is the seventh country Obama has bombed while in office, it's hard to imagine what corporate media would say constitutes an enthusiastic warrior. The reluctance meme heavily influences the elite debate about U.S. foreign policy. Obama's supporters say it's a good thing, showing that he takes such matters seriously. And his hawkish critics get to say, as they did after strikes on Syria and Iraq, well, it's about time. You can expect to hear a lot more of an idea that serves both critics and supporters. Just remember, it has nothing to do with reality. In a September 18th story about Secretary of State John Kerry's efforts to build a coalition to support the attack on Islamic State fighters in Iraq and Syria, Time Magazine's Michael Crowley made a curious assertion about the U.S. government's position on Egypt. In an appearance with Egypt's foreign minister, Kerry, readers were told, was, quote, forced to respond gingerly when asked about local human rights abuses, a long-time U.S. concern in the repressive country. Close quote. But there's no more evidence that the U.S. has long-time concerns about human rights in Egypt than there is that Obama is a reluctant warrior. The U.S. considered brutal dictator Hosni Mubarak an ally for decades. WikiLeaks cables reported in the New York Times revealed an Obama White House policy of avoiding public confrontations with Mubarak of the sort that were engaged in by the Bush administration. After Mubarak's ouster, the U.S. declined to condemn the coup that removed his successor, the Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi, and welcomed former military leader Abdul Fattah el-Sisi, who won an incredible 96% of the vote in this year's elections staged by the coup regime. U.S. leaders occasionally make pronouncements of concern for human rights in a given country, but when judging a government's actual position, the clear, decades-long record should matter more than the rhetoric, especially to journalists. Deja Vu Museum in Washington, D.C. Continental Public Radio presents a special event, The Great Debate 2014. Your host for this event is the distinguished moderator of Face the Meat, veteran Washington correspondent Bob Schlepper. The 
thank you and good afternoon. As the face of the U.S. military action against the Islamic State has increased over the past two weeks, one figure above all others has appeared in public to tell the administration's story. From Cairo to Paris to New York, Secretary of State John Kerry has been the administration's chief public spokesman, as he was in a recent appearance before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It was that same committee that heard testimony 44 years ago from an angry young veteran. That was the leader of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, John Kerry. Today, for the first time, John Kerry 1971 will debate John Kerry 2014. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Secretary Kerry, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit more about this current military operation by our country against the so-called Islamic State. I really look forward to this opportunity to both define uh, the threat that ISIL does pose, the ways in which it does, uh, and of course our strategy for defeating it. And all of that uh, could not be more critical for the country. During the years that I had the privilege of uh, serving here and working with different administrations, uh, it always struck me that American foreign policy works best and is strongest when there's a genuine discussion, a dialogue, uh, a vetting of ideas back and forth, uh, really a serious discussion, much more than uh, uh, an articulation of one set of ideas and then another and they just oppose each other and they sit out there and there's no real effort to have a meeting of the minds. Uh, so I want to make sure that by the time we're done here today, uh, I've heard from you. I know what you're thinking, and you've heard from me, and you know what we're thinking. Well, Vietnam uh, veteran Kerry, uh, uh, apparently he's addressing you directly. What's your response? Each day to facilitate the process by which the United States washes her hands of Vietnam, someone has to give up his life so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows, so that we can't say that we've made a mistake. Well, Secretary Kerry, has the United States made a mistake? Is it making another one? I know a lot of people must be asking one or another of those questions. Uh, you know, there's some debates of the past uh, uh, 30 years, 29 of which I was privileged to serve in the Senate, that will undoubtedly fill up books and documentaries for a long time. And Iraq is certainly one of them. Iraq has caused some of the most heated debates and deepest divisions of the past decade. A series of difficult issues and difficult choices about which people can honestly disagree. But I didn't come here today, and I hope we don't have to rehash uh, those debates. The issue that confronts us today is one on which we all ought to be able to agree. ISIL must be defeated. Period. End of story. Well, veteran Kerry, is it a mistake to keep harping on the mistakes of the past, as I think the secretary is suggesting? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? But we're trying to do that. And we're doing it with thousands of rationalizations. And if you read carefully the president's last speech to the people of this country, you can see that he says and says clearly, but the issue, gentlemen, the issue 
is communism. And the question is whether or not we will leave that country to the communists or whether or not we will try to give it a hope to be a free people. But the point is they're not a free people now under us. They're not a free people. And we cannot fight communism all over the world. And I think we should have learned that lesson by now. Well, Secretary Kerry, I guess the point of veteran Kerry's argument here is that American military force is not going to solve this problem, that maybe we need to find some kind of diplomatic solution to the situation in Syria as well as Iraq. There is no negotiation with ISIL. There is nothing to negotiate. And they're not offering anyone health care of any kind. You know, they're not offering education of any kind. For a whole philosophy or idea or a cult, whatever you want to call it, that frankly comes out of the Stone Age. They're cold-blooded kiddlers marauding across the Middle East, making a mockery of a peaceful religion. And that's precisely why we are building a coalition to try to stop them from denying the women and the girls and the people of Iraq the very future that they yearn for. Well, Veteran Kerry, your older counterpart, certainly makes a compelling case for outrage against the depredations of the IS group. The hypocrisy in our taking umbrage in the, in the, in the Geneva Conventions and using that as justification for a continuation of this war, when we are more guilty of, than any other body of violations of those Geneva Conventions in the use of free fire zones, harassment interdiction fire, search and destroy missions, the bombings, the torture of prisoners, the killing of prisoners, accepted policy by many units in South Vietnam. That's what we're trying to say. It's part and parcel of everything. Well, we don't have time to take on everything, but Secretary Kerry, accepting the idea that the Islamic State is a menace that needs to be dealt with militarily still leaves us with the question of exactly whose military will be doing that job. U.S. ground troops will not be sent into combat in this conflict. From the last decade, we know that a sustainable strategy is not U.S. ground forces. It is enabling local forces to do what they have to do for themselves and for their country. I want to be clear. The U.S. troops that have been deployed to Iraq do not and will not have a combat mission. Well, veteran Kerry, that's, that's about as clear a distinction as could be made, isn't it? We veterans can only look with amazement on the fact that this country has not been able to see that there's absolutely no difference between a ground troop and a helicopter crew. And yet people have accepted a differentiation fed them by the administration. No ground troops are in Laos, so it's all right to kill Laotians by remote control. But believe me, the helicopter crews fill the same body bags, and they wreak the same kind of damage on the Vietnamese and Laotian countryside as anyone else. And the president is talking about allowing that to go on for many years to come. Well, Secretary Kerry, your younger self seems to be delivering a fairly stark warning to you about the path this country is heading down. Does that concern you at all? The fact is, if we do this right, then this effort could actually become a model for what we can do with respect to the individual terrorist groups in other places that continue to wreak havoc on the efforts of governments to build their states and provide for their people. 
And I'm confident that with our strategy in place and our international partners by our side, we will have all that we need. And with the help of the Congress, we will be able to succeed in degrading and ultimately destroying this monstrous organization wherever it exists. Now, veteran Kerry, that sounds like a pretty noble purpose for American foreign policy. How can you disagree with that? An American Indian friend of mine who lives on the Indian nation of Alcatraz put it to me very succinctly. He told me how as a boy on an Indian reservation he had watched television and he used to cheer the cowboys when they came in and shot the Indians. And then suddenly one day he stopped in Vietnam and he said, my God, I'm doing to these people the very same thing that was done to my people. And he stopped. And that's what we're trying to say, that we think this thing has to end. Well, in the case of this remarkable debate, it does have to end right here because we've run completely out of time. I want to thank Secretary of State John Kerry thank and you. former Vietnam Veterans Against the War Chairman John Kerry for joining us. Thank you. Speaking for myself, I don't know if we've had a meeting of the minds here today, but I do believe we've had a pretty good minding of the meats. I'm Bob Schlepper. I'll see you next time. Funding for this special event came from the CPR Special Event Fund, which was supported by the Corporation for Potluck Broadcasting, which received funding from the Equal Time Foundation, reminding you two sides to any question are plenty. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. And let me ask you, because you, you you are formerly the New York Times Bureau Chief for the Middle East. Um, you have a great expertise in that area. We've, we're going to talk about the Islamic State today on the show. We've been talking about it for weeks, and we haven't had a chance to ask you about it. But, I mean, again, relating it to climate change, the president comes out and says this is the biggest problem facing the world. He's pursuing the Islamic State with a sense of urgency, like this is the biggest threat uh, facing him. Why? Why do you think that is? Because they don't have any end game, they don't have any policy. Uh, for 13 years, all they've done is shoot and bomb people. Um, and every time there's a problem, that's what they do. Uh, which, of course, exacerbates or inflames the whole region and makes things worse. As soon as you finish with one group, another group arises. Well, what a surprise. I mean, 
the numbers of dead our drones and attack planes have left behind, not to mention Hellfire missiles and cruise missiles and everything else. It's hard to describe to someone who's not been on a modern battlefield the explosive power of these ordinances, what they're capable of doing, and the wide swath of quote-unquote collateral damage that is inevitable every time they are used. I mean, even with Hellfire missiles, you can find people who've died after a Hellfire missile strike, and they don't have any marks of shrapnel, um, but Hellfire missiles suck the oxygen out of the air. You can just die from suffocation. Uh, and the indiscriminate use of this type of ordinance for year after year after year destroys the fabric of civil society, economic society, religious... I mean, it just eviscerates everything. And you wonder why you get an ISIS. Uh, and ISIS is an inevitable result of months and years of systematic brutalization and violence on our part. And, it, you know, we may try and bomb ISIS into oblivion, but you'll get, you know, a mutant form of ISIS somewhere else. Um, the problem is not going to end until we cease our widespread occupation of the Middle East. People don't want to be occupied. And uh, they're not going to stop until we leave. And we don't get it. We, keep, we, you know, violence hasn't worked particularly well for us. I mean, it's upended everything we initially went into to do. I mean, we're functioning today as Hezbollah's Air Force. Hezbollah fighters, of course, are with fighting alongside Basar al-Ashad's Syrian army. We're fighting on, but we're, we're Iran's Air Force. It's nuts. The whole thing's crazy. It's nuts. And, and uh, you know, they, they, don't, they don't know where they're going. It's a knee-jerk reaction with, you know, to use massive industrial weapons every time they see a threat without understanding that not only is this kind of the greatest recruiting weapon, but that the dead that we leave behind uh, enrage an entire population which seeks to carry out acts of revenge and vengeance. They don't have an Air Force, uh, so they capture hapless journalists like James Foley and cut their heads off. Uh, and they'll make it back to the United States. I mean, you know, this is a very foolish game we're playing. What do you, what do you, what, can you elaborate on that? In terms of blowback, you mean? They'll, they'll yeah, atta- I mean, attack they'll the be, US? Yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll be bombs on subways eventually. I mean, they'll get back here. There's enough foreign fighters over there with European and American passports and um, and, you know, we kill at such a big level. You have to remember that these guys go into the buildings and find their brothers or their families or their children uh, eviscerated by U.S. bombs. I mean, it's a very human reaction.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Global Action Day against the use of drones for surveillance and killing. The United States is at war. Again. Still. Always. At this point, no matter what our elected officials are calling the insurgent groups, the rhetoric certainly sounds familiar. Even Fox News has stated more than once that President Obama is sounding a lot like George W. Bush. With Congress off campaigning for the midterms, there's no direct action calling on Congress to step in opposing military actions in Iraq and Syria, other than the always recommended action of calling your reps and telling them you'll be considering their position on November 4th. You can, however, stand united with a world community in opposition to the president's primary tool for intervention in the war on terror, which now includes ISIS or ISIL. October 4th is the first global action day against the use of drones for surveillance and killing, organized by No Drones and supported by Veterans for Peace and Code Pink. Actions are planned in the U.S., England, South Korea, Germany, India, and Canada, just to name a few. You can find the event in your area at No, that's K-N-O-W, drones.com. And if you're planning one where you live, you can submit it to the calendar by email via Anastasia at CodePink.org. If you glaze over at the use of the word drone because it's part of punchlines about Amazon, the Olympics, and our overreaching surveillance state, I urge you to read the story of Brandon Bryant as told to GQ a year ago. The article, Confessions of a Drone Warrior, is candid, emotional, and cuts through the cynical rhetoric used by news outlets and on the floor of Congress. The article itself describes why Bryant's bravery in coming forward is so important. Quote, Since its inception, the drone program has been largely hidden. Its operational details gathered piecemeal from heavily redacted classified reports or stage-managed media tours by military public affairs flacks. Bryant is one of the very few people with first-hand experience as an operator who's been willing to talk openly to describe his experience from the inside, unquote. Bryant's description of the moments after his first fired shot is chilling. Quote, the smoke clears and there's pieces of the two guys around the crater. And there's this guy over here and he's missing his right leg above his knee. He's holding it and he's rolling around and the blood is squirting out of his leg and it's hitting the ground and it's hot. His blood is hot. But when it hits the ground, it starts to cool off. The pool cools fast. It took him a long time to die. I just watched him. I watched him become the same color as the ground he was lying on, unquote. Drones kill. That's their purpose. The rhetoric out of the White House and Congress that we aren't sending troops or that we're just providing tactical air support shouldn't comfort those concerned about ending war and supporting peace. Get involved. Make your voice heard. Stand with veterans for peace and no drones. As always, our segment notes include the links to this activism opportunity along with additional actions and resources. If peace matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about global Action Day against the use of drones via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push.
push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. ISIS has now released a new video uh, that is not another beheading video, thank God, but it is plainly aimed at an American audience. Um, it's 52 seconds long. It appears to be sort of a trailer for a longer video of some kind, but we don't know that for sure. What they have released is this 52 seconds worth of propaganda video. And, and it is propaganda, absolutely. Uh, but in terms of its newsworthiness, I think it is worth seeing. Because it shows both what this group is capable of in terms of their skill at producing a message about themselves. But it also gives some indication as to what, strategically, they are trying to get Americans to feel. Uh, it's less than a minute. It's not gory. It is disturbing because it's a propaganda video. Uh, but if you look at what they are trying to accomplish with this video here, you can sort of see their strategy in terms of what they want from the American people and the American government, how they want us to react to them. It's essentially why ISIS just released uh, this propaganda video, I have to tell you, there were two moments uh, in which we think there were dead bodies visible in that footage, uh, in, in this footage that we cut out. But other than that, this is uh, pretty much what they released. This is, the, this is the tape. Now, part of the reaction to this video today uh, has been about just how Hollywood their production values are, right? how slick they are with video and editing. If part of their success as a terrorist organization is conveying a message that's attractive to recruits around the world who then send them money or, or come fight with them, then it's helpful to know that they're really good at crafting their own message and making it look like Hollywood. But that, of course, is only one side of what they're doing. That's one side of their strategy to try to succeed on their own terms, right? Yes, on the one hand, they need to build themselves up. They need to make themselves stronger and bigger and richer by attracting recruits and attracting supporters. But the other side of it is that they also have to attack, right? They also have to try to make their enemies weaker. And they do that directly with force in the places they have taken territory in, in Iraq and Syria. They've just simply used military force to overwhelm rivals and local authorities and take over whole swaths of each of those countries. They've not yet tried to launch a physical assault of any kind on the United States, but they do clearly think of the United States as their enemy, as maybe their great enemy, as the enemy they most want to fight. Certainly, they like to portray the United States as their equal in the world, who they want to face off against one-on-one. -on -one. And the way they're trying to hurt the United States, at least not yet, is, is about them physically getting to us, right? The way they're trying to hurt the United States is instead by trying to make us hurt ourselves. They're trying to scare us and so terrorize us that we take actions that we otherwise would never take. That out of fear and anger and upset at what they've done, we allow ourselves to be provoked into doing things because of ISIS that with a cooler head, we would not do. That's 
global terrorism, terrorism strategy 101, right? It's the, the near enemy, far enemy idea. You can hit the near enemy because you're near to them. The far enemy, you have to convince to hurt themselves. And, and so this new video that ISIS has put out, uh, it's not aimed at the local people where ISIS is located. It's not aimed at scaring into submission the people who live in the areas in Iraq and Syria that this group controls. It's not aimed at upsetting the Assad regime that they're opposed to in Syria and that they want to overthrow. It's not aimed at the Iraqi government, which they also want to overthrow. This new video that they've released is designed for an American audience, and they've chosen American reference points that will make us feel like they're coming to get us, right? They're, they're supposed to freak us out. So in this new video they've released, they show the American president, they show President Obama, uh, they show a reference to the previous American president, they show uh, the mission accomplished banner from the George W. Bush presidency, they show American troops on the ground uh, in the Middle East, they show the White House, uh, but, but they're good at trying to scare us, right? They don't just show stock footage of the White House or some postcard picture of the White House, they instead choose footage of the White House that maybe you might take yourself on your cell phone if you were driving past the White House, which then makes it extra scary when it comes from ISIS. This is the footage they show of the White House. It's like drive-by, not very professional footage. Makes you wonder, hmm, how'd they shoot this? Is the ISIS casing the White House? Are they here? That's the feeling they're trying to create, right? They're here. They're coming for us. This is a war between the United States of America and ISIS. And they think they're going to win. They think they're going to threaten the White House. They think they're going to take over our country as the Islamic Caliphate, right? Worldwide ambitions. They're coming for us. Late last month uh, in Nigeria, a group called Boko Haram also declared that they are an Islamic Caliphate. And of course, that's awkward because the whole idea of the caliphate is that it's supposed to rule the whole world. So there can't really be two as long as we only have one world. But ISIS declared that they're the caliphate. They declared that in Iraq and Syria. And now last month, Boko Haram in Nigeria, they declared that they're the caliphate too. Nigeria is a big country. It's the most populous country in Africa. It has over 170 million people. Uh, and Boko Haram did not declare the caliphate in all of Nigeria. They declared it in northern Nigeria and eastern Nigeria uh, along the border with Cameroon along the eastern side there. And that geography is helpful for understanding the efforts to fight against Boko Haram thus far. It at least helps you understand those reports that when Nigeria sent its troops out there to go fight Boko Haram, sometimes instead of fighting them, the Nigerian troops instead just threw down their weapons and fled across the border into the neighboring nation of Cameroon. So the Iraqi troops that dropped their uniforms and dropped their weapons and left the keys in the tank when ISIS took over places like Mosul in Iraq, uh, Nigeria has had the same kind of problems when they've tried to get their troops to fight Boko Haram. Like ISIS, Boko Haram does operate sort of like a typical terrorist organization, but they also operate sort of like an army. They have a lot of advanced and heavy weaponry that they've taken from the Nigerian military. Boko Haram is a large group. They're holding territory after they take it. They don't just attack and leave. They, clear they hold territory, they clear it, and they, hold, they, they keep control of it. Boko Haram, of course, is the group that horrified the whole world, including the United States, when they kidnapped hundreds of schoolgirls from a school in northern Nigeria. 270 girls they took. Just over 50 of those girls were able to escape in the first couple of days after the kidnapping. But since then, none of those 270 girls has gotten away since the initial few first escaped. 
Those girls were never released. There was, of course, a rash of attention when the girls were first taken five months ago. There was a lot of international pressure. There was the Bring Back the Girls campaign. Uh, but if you haven't heard anything about it since, it's not because they brought back the girls. They did not. Those girls are still gone. Boko Haram still has them. Today, Boko Haram sent two suicide bombers into a teacher's college in northern Nigeria. One of the attackers reportedly blew himself up inside a lecture hall that was filled with students. The second bomber was trying to enter a second lecture hall, but he couldn't get in somehow, and he blew himself, outside, blew himself up outside the lecture hall. The initial reports out of northern Nigeria in this attack today were that at least 15 students were killed. More than 30 of them were hospitalized. Boko Haram has captured lots of modern military equipment from the Nigerian armed forces. They are well-armed and apparently well-funded. They control territory now that is about the size of West Virginia. They're currently ruling over about three million civilians in Nigeria. In areas under their control, they rule with beheadings. Uh, they take women and girls wholesale. They're forcing children to become child soldiers for them. And now they say they are an Islamic caliphate and they are going to take over the whole world. NBC News reported this week that their group is poised to take over yet another large city in Nigeria, a city with a population of about one million people. Boko Haram has it surrounded and seems ready to move into it. So their supposed caliphate is presumably about to get a lot bigger. Despite all that, though, Boko Haram has not caused the same reaction in the United States that ISIS has. Substantively, there's not much material difference in terms of the threats posed by these two different groups in these two different parts of the world. In fact, when you look at the U.S. government assessments of the kind of threat posed by these groups, the U.S. government has used basically exactly the same language to describe the threat posed by these groups, how much of a threat they are to us and how they want to try to hurt us. Watch. Here's our government talking about ISIS now. At present... We have no credible information that ISIL is planning to attack the homeland. While we have not yet detected specific plotting against our homeland, ISIL leaders have threatened America and our allies. So that's how the U.S. government is explaining the threat from ISIS now. That is exactly the same way they have explained the threat from Boko Haram. FBI Director James Comey describing the threat to the U.S. from Boko Haram last year. He said this, the FBI assesses that Boko Haram does not currently pose a threat to the homeland. Boko Haram does, however, aspire to attack U.S. or Western interests in the region. So, according to the U.S. government, that's the wrap on Boko Haram. They're not about to attack us at home, but they would love to. And meanwhile, they threaten the region. That's exactly the same wrap on ISIS. They're not about to attack us here at home, but they would love to. Meanwhile, they threaten the region. Same threat assessment. Both groups killing thousands of people, controlling territory in which millions of people live, declaring themselves an Islamic caliphate, committing wholesale human rights abuses, overpowering local governments where they live, destabilizing whole regions, proclaiming their intention to, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but declaring their intentions to take over the whole world. Right? Same thing, both groups. But only one of them has done this to us. ISIS is the one over which we are now starting a new American war in the Middle East. What's the difference? Is it Middle Eastern oil as opposed to African oil? Is it that our path to war in Iraq is such a well-trod path that we find it very easy to go back down that path again? Or has ISIS got themselves the U.S. war they always wanted, while Boko Haram has not, simply because ISIS is better at terror? 
they're better in the literal sense of causing terror in us, terrorizing us. They're more skilled at scaring American politicians and scaring the American public. In these propaganda videos showing the shaky drive-by footage of the White House and the terrible beheading video showing the execution of American hostages and British hostages. They have proven their ability to both get our attention and to scare the American people. Are they doing that in the hopes that we would react a certain way? And are we now, in fact, reacting exactly the way they want us to? Okay, this is Tanya in Sin City, California, and um, after your call for domestic violence experts to respond to the Ray Rice issue, I think Elka was the only person who called in, and I just wanted to offer another perspective, but I, I'm not saying that like I'm an, ex- an expert, but I do have um, a pretty extensive background academically and professionally in domestic violence and sexual assault doing you know, crisis intervention is part of a domestic violence response team, and I worked inside a battered women's shelter for many years, and um, also legal services for battered women. And I agree with what Elka said to Professor Rambo. She was exactly right. You know, we are trained to respond to the question, why doesn't she leave, with the retort, well, why doesn't he stop hitting her? <laughs> um, and, you know, and explain, she doesn't necessarily want the relationship to end, she just wants the violence to end. And um, my favorite one is that leaving doesn't necessarily make her safer, since um, we know that women are most at risk of violence and murder after they've ended the relationship. So these are what I kind of think of as like domestic violence 101 education, and that's probably the level that Professor Rambo needed to hear. But um, I kind of like to elevate the conversation just a bit, and I wanted to share some of my insights from working with this population. Um, we would repeatedly see that, you know, women would come through the system and, you know, maybe we could get them to cooperate with law enforcement. And they'd enter the battered women's shelter, get, you know, get a restraining order, and then we'd start to try and set them up with comprehensive services so they, you know, could get maybe job training um, or daycare and, if we're lucky, transitional housing. And we work with them for months. I mean, sometimes six months they'd be in the shelter. And we'd finally, like, send her off into this new violence-free life and, of course, you know, she'd get back together with the guy, and a few months later, she'd end up in our shelter again, you know, having been beaten up. And so the motto that we had was that we are just planting a seed. We keep saying this to each other. Um, you know, if it doesn't germinate this time around, then maybe it will the next time or the time after that. And we knew that the reasons that women stay or return to their batters are, you know, multifactorial. And, you know, that was all expected, and it came with the territory. But the thing that I saw in the shelter um, that was more distressing was when the woman would, you know, leave shelter after all these months, you know, you know, working with her, and she'd end up back again because now she's being beaten by a brand new boyfriend. And maybe, you know, we could be successful in helping her terminate that relationship and get, you know, services and resources and send her out again. And then six months later, a year later, she's back in the shelter Again, and this time it's from boyfriend number three, who, guess what, is also a batterer. This was actually very common. 
And I started to feel like we were doing a disservice to women by not acknowledging that the woman is a common denominator in this pattern of ending up with men who happen to be violent. Okay, hold right there. I'd like to pause and issue a quick warning that the remainder of this message contains statements and opinions that may simply be too nuanced for some listeners. If you are uncomfortable dealing in nuance and subtlety, then you may simply wish to fast forward. I believe that the majority of you listening will find these comments to be insightful and enlightening. However, there are undoubtedly those who will grossly misinterpret what is being said as casting blame on victims of abuse for the situations they find themselves in. If you find yourself with that idea crossing your mind, then let me save you the time by telling you now that you are wrong. If this sounds like victim blaming to you, then you need to think harder about it. Now, I acknowledge it's possible that there are explanations for this that are external to the individual woman, such as, you know, um, these women are members of a very vulnerable population. They can be easily exploited by abusers. There were usually economic factors that made them more likely to become dependent on men. And, you know, maybe there's a, a predisposition for violence in men who are attracted to economically dependent women because of their desire to control and isolate them. And then, of course, I know that in some circumstances, women, they really don't have that much agency or autonomy around decision-making about who they'll date or what kinds of men are by default in their lives. And it's also possible that the population I work with may not be representative of battered women as a whole, so maybe my experience is skewed. Having said all that, I feel like if we continue to refuse to discuss what peace women are bringing to this, um, to what extent battered women are attracted to the personality traits of men who are also prone to violence, then we're missing what I think is a really important part of a long-term healing and a, a lifetime empowerment of battered women. But we're so afraid of victim blaming that this is almost never part of the discourse. The reality is that many of these women grow up in violent homes um, and they have a very distorted idea about what a relationship looks like. Now, if you heard that statement about looking at what women are bringing to the table that may contribute to their likelihood of finding themselves in an abusive situation and are struggling to understand how that's different than leveling some degree of culpability onto the victim, then let me try to explain it this way. What the caller Tanya is searching for is explanations without any attachments to moral judgments at all. It is absolutely possible and often incredibly useful to dive into these types of discussions in search of explanations for people's actions without additionally seeking to cast blame. Unfortunately, those two ideas so often go hand in hand that many find it difficult to separate the two or are even unaware that they can be separated. So I will say again that if that idea is crossing your mind and you think that those two ideas of explanation and blame cannot be separated then I will save you the time by telling you now that you are wrong. Now, I can't prove this, but I have a theory that if you took a, a typical battered woman and say you put her in a room with 10 men, all strangers, and one of them is violent, has a history of domestic violence, and then have her do like a speed date scenario where she spends 10 minutes with each man, talking to him, kind of getting to know him. The end, we say to her, okay, so of the 10, which one appealed to you the most? I would put my nickel down that she'd zero in on the one batter and pick him. Now, I can't prove it, but I believe it. I ran this voicemail by Katie before playing it on the show, and she had a response to that particular idea, which is that, you know, it's a nice thought experiment, but it'd be nice to play it the other way around. Have, uh, you know, one man with a history of abuse 
go through a series of speed dating with, you know, 10 women or whatever, only one of which was a past victim of abuse to see how well that abuser could zero in on the personality of the abused. Essentially an easy mark for the abuser to continue abusing. But we're taught in domestic violence education that it could happen you know, to anyone of any educational level, you know, any socioeconomic status, religion, race, etc. So that's, there's this idea that it's something kind of entirely random. It can strike any relationship. Um, you know, the fickle finger of fate is unpredictable. And I suppose in theory this, this could be true, but in practice it really isn't. There are all kinds of precursors to violent relationships that are entirely predictable like childhood backgrounds that make domestic violence more likely to be intergenerational. And there are red flags that present very early in a relationship that would cause some women to immediately discontinue pursuing the relationship. No, I'm not going to go on a second date with you. While other women, they don't recognize those red flags and the relationship becomes more established and later it becomes harder and more dangerous to leave. So it's not entirely random there are women who are more likely to end up with violent men. So I think domestic violence services need to recognize this and provide substantial therapy and skill building that allows women to ask themselves, you know, what piece do I bring to this pattern of relationships? And this doesn't mean that she's responsible for the violence or that she wanted a violent relationship or that it's her fault and I'm not trying to blame her. But we have to get past that knee-jerk defense reaction if we want to go deeper into this very complicated dynamic and really help women be able to make healthier choices for how they live the rest of their lives after successfully leaving a batterer. And I love that ELCA has worked with batterers and I wish that our society would devote the vast majority of treatment and intervention resources to be focused on understanding why the people who perpetrate intimate partner violence do so and what is needed for them to stop. But that's not the way the model's set up. Right now, a majority of the domestic violence service models are set up to service the victim. So in that case, don't we have a responsibility to help the victim explore what's behind this maladaptive cycle of violent relationships so that she has a better chance of ending it herself instead of waiting on men to finally figure out how to stop being violent? So those are my two cents. Thanks. I love your show, Jay. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, you know, after that original voicemail that Tanya left, she actually called back concerned that, you know, perhaps I shouldn't play the message on the show because those comments in the wrong hands could very well do more harm than good. And she's right. If you made comments like that, you know, in, in a men's rights activist forum, then they would absolutely be seen as just yet another, you know, in a long series of excuses why, you know, victims of abuse or rape or anything along those lines are actually pretty much to blame for their own circumstances. And like, yeah, maybe the, you know, the actual abuser or the actual rapist, like maybe has some culpability, but like, let's really look at those victims. But that's because men's rights activists are some of the stupidest people on the planet. So I chose to have a little bit more faith in my audience. And, you know, I, I, you know, treated the, the message with, I think the 
special circumstances it, it deserved. Uh, I, as I said, I think a lot of people will have found that message interesting and enlightening, and some uh, are not going to interpret it properly. So I, I, I did what I could to minimize the collateral damage done by uh, you know too much nuance in the brains of those who maybe uh, couldn't quite process it. So uh, I don't I don't need to put anyone down too much, but. If you find yourself sort of struggling to understand the points that were being made, uh, my suggestion to you is just to continue listening. It's much easier to learn things when you're listening than uh, if you decide to you know, immediately pipe up and give your own opinions. Uh, you know, just maybe give it a little bit of time and see if you can't learn something. So if you have comments on this or any other topic and you have an appreciation for nuance and subtlety, uh, the number again, please call in 202-999-3991. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is before.